Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 290 of our Kick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Reductionist Cure, an interview with Dr. Janice Weiss. My name is Matt Sabatello. My name is Richard Johannesson. We're honored to share the knowledge and wisdom of Dr. Janice Weiss. Her research areas of interest are immunology, microbial pathogenesis, genetic regulation of Lyme disease severity, and pathogenesis of Borrelia burgdorferi. Lyme disease is the focus of her research, and she's made some fascinating discoveries that can help real-world patients like you and I. Her next steps are to take what she's learned at the research level and bring it to the clinical level and start working with doctors and patients to apply the lessons she's learned in the lab to help us feel better. Hello, Professor Weiss, and welcome to the Tick Bootcamp Podcast. Hello. I'm glad to be here. Well, thank you for getting up so early and looking so wonderful uh, at 7 o'clock in the morning your time. And uh, what we like to do on our podcast, Professor Weiss, is we like to give our folks a context for our guests. So why don't we first talk about where you're currently working? Um, I work at the University of Utah, the School of Medicine. I'm in the Department of Pathology, and it's in Salt Lake City. And talk to us generally what you do there and, and give us some sense of, of what, what the most enjoyable elements of your job um, are, including the research and the work that you're doing with your students. So uh, most enjoyable part of being uh, an academic professor for me is getting to work with graduate students, getting to think about doing research um, on an important uh, problem and working in the lab on that problem, but also having students that are excited and energetic and knowledgeable who want to come and work in the lab with me. And we have lab meetings and we exchange ideas and work on problems together. So for me, it's working in the lab and it's working with students is the most enjoyable part. So, and it's not just your students that you've worked with. I, I understand that you have actually a couple of children who, um, who, have, um, who are working in the family line. So talk to us about, um, about your family and uh, give us some background on, on um, where you went to school. So I uh, was, I grew up in Kansas City. And so I did my undergraduate degree in microbiology at the University of Kansas in Lawrence. So I'm a Jayhawk. All and right. Go, uh, go Jayhawks. Great basketball uh, school. Go Jayhawks. Right. Um, and then after I graduated, I went to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis and I did a PhD in microbiology. I worked with uh, Pat Cleary, who is a wonderful group uh, geneticist working on group A strep, uh, which is the bacteria that causes strep throat. Um, and it was in Minnesota that I met my husband, John Weiss. And uh, we married in Minnesota, and then uh, we took the next step for us was to move to Boston, where we were uh, postdoctoral fellows at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital, which are affiliated. So I understand you and your husband had common interests when you were both uh, graduate students and then what did your fellowship. So talk to us about, um, about what type of work your husband was doing um, at the time that you had met. Talk to us about the fellowship that you did together and talk to us about the type of work your husband did before he passed. Um, so my husband was working, was a virologist at the University of Minnesota, also in the Department of Microbiology. So he worked with Tony Ferris and um, worked on um, understanding assembly of a rasosarcoma virus. And, um, and then we moved to Boston and he did a uh, postdoc with uh, John Seidman on um, uh, 
immunology, molecular immunology, and I did a postdoctoral fellowship with Doug Fearon on complement, which is a complex pathway of serum proteins. It's very important as a defense against microbial infection and um, and also against autoimmunity. So it's a uh, yeah. So so the two of you had these these parallel paths that you're on academically, and now of course you were you were married, and then the two of you came out to the same university to um, to work. Uh, so talk to us about what it was like to um, have this sort of partner in life and partner in first, um, you know, s- studies and then ultimately in uh, the research work that, or at least research that you were both doing at the same university. So when we were still in Boston, we had um, our daughters, twin girls. And um, so that sort of made life a little bit more complicated. Boston is a really fun place to live, but it's congested and we were ready to leave and and establish our own labs. And so we moved and we were very fortunate the University of Utah had uh, offered us both positions, tenure track faculty positions. So we uh, moved to Utah. Um, John and I both had separate labs and, uh, but we had our joint lab meetings and really helped each other out with our students and postdocs and um, and interactions on campus. So he, his lab was more um, fundamental processes of um, immunology. And, um, and um, I, just before leaving Boston, I met Sam Telford and Jose Riviero, who were two um, very outstanding um, tick biologists. And they taught me how to work with the Lyme disease spirochete, Borrelia burgdorferi. And so uh, before, and so I had just taken on that project when we moved to Utah and I, um, as a microbiologist by training, I had really missed working with the bacteria. And the first time that Sam Telford showed me a Borrelia burgdorferi swimming under a dike-filled microscope and I, I was, and I saw these wiggling spirochetes and it reminded me of something from Indiana Jones in a snake pit. I was, uh, I was hooked. And I said, uh, this, this is where, uh, this is where I want to work. This is, this is the project I want, where I want to go with my career. I want to take the things I learned as a postdoctoral fellow, return to microbiology. And Lyme disease was an emerging pathogen, an emerging disease. And there were, uh, and there was opportunity to bring um, expertise from different fields into the um, in, into a study and really make progress um, because it was relatively new um, and new information was coming out. So, we, so we let us, let's pause that for one second, Mr. Uh, Weiss, because uh, you have two Lyme geeks on here who are very excited to talk with another Lyme geek, and it was really cool for you to outline for us how your passion for becoming a lion geek was uh, was triggered. But let me let me build that one more piece of your of your personal story before we move forward. And that is talk to us about your daughters because of course w- you would wonder what two PhDs would ultimately produce, right? So the two of you are on these uh, on these you know these geeky academic tracks. You're both doing fellowships at at Harvard or doing postdoctoral research at Harvard. So what is produced when two twins come to two <laughs> geeks? Who are doing their uh, doing their um, their work at um, you know the top university at, in the U.S. What what talk to us about you two daughters and what they're both doing today? So um, when once we moved to Utah, we stayed in Utah, and our, our daughters uh, went uh, 
became, were definitely interested in going into the lab with us and um, under, and seeing what we did in the lab and coming in and, you know, a Saturday morning in the lab was a fun thing to do. Um, dinner table topics were probably different than the average dinner table. <laughs> I remember when our daughters were in high school and a friend was coming over for dinner. It's like, mom, don't talk about your work at dinner. Talk about something else. Don't talk about science at dinner. And, um, we uh yeah so and when they were in high or in grade school we did a science they did a science project obviously helped by us where we were uh titled do identical twins have identical dna and so we did some some uh gene map genome mapping very very couple of genes but just to show that they were similar in our daughters um and uh, so, yeah, so we were kind of geeky, I would say, pretty geeky. But we did, one of the nice things about uh, living in Utah is you can be outside. And we spent, we spent lots of time outdoors. We, um, and uh, we were really close to the Grand Tetons in Yellowstone. So we you know, took a lot of trips there and they love nature and, you know, and just playing outside and twins are the same age that, and so they can get out and play with each other. And, um, and so we did a lot of hiking, biking, um, skiing, camping, things like that as they were growing up. All right, well, so you're, you're, you're unfortunately begging for me to ask the question that I have to ask as, uh, as a Lyme researcher um, who has two young children who are now enjoying the outdoors um, tell me what kinds of things were you doing as a mom that, uh, that were designed to keep your children safe from coming in contact with ticks and tick diseases? Right. So, you know, in the interesting thing is in Salt Lake City, we don't have um, uh, many ticks and the Exodes ticks are not, uh, are not common. In fact, they're rarely identified in Utah. The, um, the environment is just too dry for for the ticks and so we it hasn't for us this incredible um uh, need to to constantly be screening for ticks is not as big a problem in utah or um the tetons or yellowstone as it is on the east coast so we took regular precautions of uh you know just using insect repellent more for um mosquitoes and other kinds of insects but um in general um we weren't we weren't very concerned about tick-borne diseases in in this area. So before we come back to uh, discussing what your daughters are doing today, I do want to build out that piece of, of ticks and, and, and tick biology. When we interviewed uh, Dr. Thomas Mather from the University of Rhode Island, one of the things he talked to us uh, about was what ticks need to survive, right? And he said they need blood and they need moisture, right? And, and that was one of the tools, and that is one of the tools that we encourage our community to be aware of when they, they are, uh, they're interacting with nature because you're more likely to come in contact with ticks if you're in a place where there's moisture. And obviously, you know, be, because ticks will need blood meals, they will, uh, of course, the more, uh, more animals that we come in contact with, the more likely it is that they're going to be uh, they're going to be infested with ticks. So in Utah, because the climate is so dry, the there is not adequate moisture for the ticks. Is that the reason why there aren't many many ticks in Utah? That's my understanding. I'm not a tick biologist, but that is definitely uh, you know what I have have been told. It's not that there's some anything that's preventing ticks from coming to Utah. 
It's just that those that do come in on birds, et cetera, don't, uh, don't find the, the, um, the right environment. Right. Okay. So let's, 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 uh, finish this piece of our conversations. Talk to us about what your two daughters are doing today. You have these, you have these, uh, these um, identical twins and you said they are identical twins, right? You have yeah, identical yes. twins who are being raised by, um, by two geeky PhDs. Um, and I'm assuming, you know, they perhaps put limits on you the way my children put limits on me. I'm not allowed to talk about Lyme disease or ticks for any more than, then 10 minutes, anytime we have company at our house because my children <laughs> place limits on me. So I'm assuming you have the same limits placed on you by your children, but talk to us about where, uh, where this um, childhood experience took your two daughters. So uh, when the girls graduated from high school, they um, went to, they wanted to go to small liberal arts colleges. Uh, they wanted to le leave Utah and they wanted to go to some to a college that uh, neither of their parents was a faculty member. In other words, even though it would have been nice for them to have stayed in Salt Lake City and taken advantage of tuition benefits at the University of Utah, they really needed to leave. They needed to leave uh, being in the shadow of my husband and I, and they needed separation from each other. So uh, my daughter, Julie, went to the University of Puget Sound and my daughter Allison went to Lewis and Clark. So they went to the Pacific Northwest um, Small Liberal Arts Colleges and, um, uh, and explored different types of degrees. But Julie ended up with a degree in um, molecular biology, uh, in molecular biology, that's right. And Allie in a, with a biology degree. Um, and then they, uh, they both though to, um, took time deciding what they wanted to do if they, or if they wanted to proceed to do advanced degrees, they just needed time for some life experiences. Um, and then, yes, and then eventually, um, so they did some traveling and working outdoors and then kind of came back to lab type of things. And um, Allison ended up getting a PhD in microbiology at University of California in Davis. And Julie ended up going to medical school. Um, she went to, she did a master's uh, of, uh, of public health in Seattle, um, but she came back to the University of Utah for medical school, a large reason because my husband was ill and she lived with us for um, his, his last few months of life. And she did her medical school degree here. Congratulations. So it's a, you, you should, you should be a very proud parent and, uh, and they're doing uh, it's, it's wonderful that, that they've stayed in the, uh, in the family trade, if you will. <laughs> well, we, we try to encourage law or something where they do have good at arguing skills, it seems like. But I mean, that's probably a bad assumption on my part. And you'll tell me. <laughs> no, they, it's, 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 it's a good assumption. But of course, they were they, they were they were um, more passionate about getting into the lab than they were with developing the argument skills that they had to develop to keep their mom from talking too much about ticks and tick diseases, which is one of the reasons why I think I have a couple of lawyers because uh, they're constantly reining me in and preventing me from talking about ticks and tick diseases. So in the spirit of, of moving back, so talk to us about the work that you started to do when you, um, when you came to the uh, University of Utah and how this passion that was built into you when you were in the line belt in, in, in uh, you know, you were doing your, your uh, research and your fellowship in, um, in, uh, at Harvard here, here in, in Massachusetts, you, uh, you brought, you know, it's sort of like you, 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 you got this passion. You saw this, you saw this, this, this bacteria 
it created this passion in you and you brought it with you all the way west to a place where uh, where there were no uh, there were no ticks that were harboring that bacteria, at least at that time. And we'll, we'll talk more about that later. But so talk about how that that spurred this passion in you and how you brought that back with you all the way to the uh, to the um, to the western part of the U.S. Well, you know, so you are, we are I was influenced by the um, colleagues in my department when I moved uh, to Salt Lake City and in my department and around me. And so um, in the department of pathology, there were um, a couple of uh, other faculty who were um, outstanding mouse immunologists. And because Borrelia burgdorferi naturally, the natural reservoir is uh, the wild mouse. And Steve Barthold had just uh, discovered that there were inbred strains, there were laboratory mice that could be used to study the diseases caused by, the symptoms caused by Borrelia infection. So the arthritis and the carditis. Um, I thought it would be a really good opportunity to study Borrelia infection in the mouse. Um, and so these colleagues were very helpful in getting me started working on a Borrelia infection in the mouse. And I initially thought, well, we need to look at the immune response and we need to study um, the how uh, mice respond to infection with Borrelia burgdorferi. Um, okay, so let's pause, let's pause that for a second. We want to we want to define some terms here because this is important for our community. So, first, please define what a pathologist is and what an immunologist is. Okay, a pathologist is um, generally a physician or a, a DVM, a veterinary person who studies. Um, studies the, um, the tissue responses to um, an infection or any kind of disease. It might, uh, uh, so studies the abnormalities that um, can occur following um, a disease. And an immunologist is somebody, a scientist or a physician who studies the immune response. Um, and this can be an immune response to a bacteria or a virus. It could be an immune response to self tissue, an autoimmune response. Um, and so immunologists uh, have a lot of constantly developing new tools to understand how the immune system, our immune system responds to um, any kind of challenge, be it a, uh, an infection or an autoimmune challenge and um, trying to understand in more molecular details, how things go correctly, how appropriately fight an infection, or in some cases, how things are sidetracked and we have an, a, an inappropriate response that can lead to um, a pathological outcome. And that's where the pathologist would come in. Okay, and give, give us one more definition. What is a microbiologist? A microbiologist is someone who studies microbes, microorganisms. Um, and so I, my PhD was in microbiology and I have studied um, bacterial infections. And I study, and you can, and a microbiologist can study um, how bacteria function, how they, um, how they divide, how they make toxins, how they um, are selected, select for certain growth environments. Um, my, uh, my studies and background are more, more in the interactions of microorganisms with their hosts. So host pathogen interactions 
Um, and so I study, I've always studied uh, bacteria that can infect people. In, okay, so, for, so when we're talking about hosts, so, so for example, if I were bitten by a tick and the bacteria that you study was spit into me, I would be the host and the bacteria would be the, the, the organism that you would be studying as a microbiologist, meaning my response to the bacteria, correct? Right, right. Okay. And, the, and, and an immunologist would be studying my immune response to the bacteria that was spit into my system, right? So that, again, as the host, you would be studying my immune response. That's correct. And then of course, a pathologist would be looking at the impact that the bacteria was having when it was spit into me, the host, and my immune response, or the impact that my immune response was having to the tissue. Give me, give me that, that connection between the pathologist and the immunologist and the microbiologist. So the pathologist then would look at the abnormality. What's, what's abnormal? So very, for my research, we're very dependent on uh, a, patholo a veterinary pathologist, Jim Zachary, who actually without, looks and evaluates heart tissue or joint tissue from infected mice to say, well, this, and he's got a way to rank and say, uh, he looks not only at the cells that are changed, he looks for changes, changes that would be abnormalities caused by the bacterial infection. And they could be caused by um, products the bacteria make that are detrimental to the, to the host, in our case, the joint tissue. They, he would look for immunological cells that infiltrate due to the, um, due, due to the bacterial infection interacting and causing um, changes in the host tissue. So the pathologist sort of looks at the end product and says, these are the things that are wrong and that are going wrong. And these are what's causing, uh, these, are, these are the characteristics of this um, arthritic joint. Whereas, okay. and a lot of those may be meet, are likely to be mediated by the host's immunological response to the bacteria. So one of the things that Dr. McDonald, uh, when we interviewed him, he described a pathologist as sort of a detective, right? And he called himself the doctor's doctor, where they're looking at the impact that the disease process has had on the host. And then you can look, work backwards to determine how that end product had occurred. Is that, is that a proper description? Yeah, I think that's, a, yeah, that would be. And yes. Okay, so now let's talk about the mice, right? I mean, you, so, so you, you, you arrived to the University of Utah and you now have this unique experience where mice are now available to you and they're available to you and you're researching in a unique fashion. So build that out for us because we understand that mice are a very important part of the team that ultimately um, helps the Lyme bacteria become sort of supercharged and when it gets spit into us and the impact that it has. So talk to us about mice and, and, and their role in the disease process. Right, so in nature, the wild mouse is really critical because it's a, a major reservoir for the bacteria Borrelia burgdorferi, and um, Borrelia infection of mice is really interesting. Um, the mice can harbor uh, the Borrelia for many months, even though, whereas many other bacteria would be cleared by the by the mouse's immune response, Borrelia are pretty. Uh, 
very good at evading the host defenses, the mouse's immune response for clearance. And that's critical because um, an infected mouse is essential for the tick during their feeding stages, the larval and nymphal stages, to feed on an, a, a mouse that actually infected with Borrelia burgdorferi in for order for the tick to become and pick up the, the spirochete, the bacteria, and become infected and competent to transfer to another host at the next feeding cycle, feeding time. And so, so let's, stay, let's stay with this, this mouse in the wild for a moment, then we're gonna get to the, the, the uh, mouse in the research lab. So um, it, it seems like the bacteria um, and the and the mouse immune system have developed some kind of a symbiotic relationship because the bacteria is able to evade the the immune system of the mouse, yet it doesn't make the mouse sick. Talk about that. How the how the how the bacteria and the and the um, mouse immune system seems to have developed a um, a symbiotic relationship where the the uh, bacteria can can stay harbored in the mouse without making the mouse sick. Right, so, you know, there's some really interesting new research in this area. It's something we really haven't understood. We just know that um, in wild mice, they become infected they, for a, with Borrelia, but they don't display, they don't display arthritis or carditis symptoms. Um, Alan Barber, who um, of course was one of the, first people to research and discover Borrelia burgdorferi was working with Willie Burgdorfer when it was first cultured. He yeah. has recently made discoveries studying the wild mouse and found that if you look at the wild mouse's um, response to Borrelia burgdorferi, it's really, there's, um, it's very mute, it's, it's muted. It's not a robust inflammatory response. There seems to be truly is. We don't know if symbiosis is a proper word because we don't know what Borrelia does for the mouse, if it does anything positive, but the uh, mouse's, this mouse's uh, response to Borrelia is different than the laboratory mouse's response, different from um, human response to Borrelia. And it seems to be, and it's not just to Borrelia, it's to um, other kinds of pathogenic bacteria as well, it's just a it's just a less um, a, a, a just a it's just a low inflammation response, sort of, un, and it and it seems to um, cause very little change in the mouse. Doctor, so much less inflammation. Doctor, I'm just curious about we we talked about the term pathologist with Rich, right? Where you study the tissue response to a pathogen, and we talked about how in humans, of course, we know our tissues respond to Lyme disease, and we have inflammation, and we have all kinds of responses to it, and we can get very sick. And you just described that in a mouse model in the wild, a mouse generally is not impacted by the Lyme bacteria, but in the research model, it is, right? So yes. from from working with a pathologist. What is the, view, the viewpoint from a pathologist why humans have such a response to the bacteria and it impacts their, their tissues negatively? And in the wild, it doesn't, but then in the laboratory environment, mice do have a response. So it just seems so odd to me that there's three scenarios with kind of three different reactions to the bacteria, right? So, you know, initially, um, Stephen Barthel did a lot of work when he was at Yale um, 
try, and he was a, a very distinguished veterinary pathologist and PhD DVM and had developed a model for mouse hepatitis and had devoted his career to understanding pathology and mouse infections. And so he was in a wonderful position um, to look at the response of, um, of wild mice to Borrelia burgdorferi. And he saw we, we're not seeing anything that represents and mimics what we see in, in people. But he knew that laboratory mice could be a different, uh, could provide opportunities because laboratory mice um, are, they're sort of, it's like almost like thinking about different breeds of dogs, even though laboratory mice all look about the same size, they're, they are, they're different and they have different, uh, different, um, versions of genes that are shared by a number, by all the mice, but different, we call them alleles, different versions of these genes. And some combinations that are found in different laboratory mice make them much more susceptible for, to very different types of infectious challenges, cancers, eye abnormalities. Um, it, you know, there's just a spectrum of uh, and at that time, dozens and dozens of different laboratory mice that are slightly different from each other, but they're, um, but generation and generation, a particular mouse strain, we use one called C3H, is, is reproducibly shares certain traits and inherits, inherits certain traits. And so Dr. Barthold looked at 16 different um, laboratory mice and infected them all with Borrelia burgdorferi and he could find a spectrum of disease and he found some laboratory mice that develop very severe disease. This is the C3H mice. He found other laboratory mice that were reproducibly had very mild disease, the black six mice, and they looked like, um, the black six mice looked much more like the wild mice. And so he was able to say, well, when we, when we can kind of, I, isolate these versions, various versions, and keep them constant in different laboratory mouse strains, we can actually look and see when we infect some of these mice pathologies that look like what we see in, in humans, in patients. Okay, so just real quick, I wanna just build that out a little bit more. So we know a big part of what you're studying, Dr. Weiss, is how genetic elements can impact illness and the mouse model with Lyme disease, right? And you yeah. just use some high level words I want to break down further because wild mice, again, not so much. They don't really get sick. Humans, they can get, some humans don't get sick at all, right? They're asymptomatic. Right. Some, some humans get extremely sick and become chronically ill. We understand right. there's co-infections, other things, other genetic pieces to it, but I think they're all related, right? So when you said that in the laboratory environment, the C3H mice react very severely to Lyme disease. However, the, I think you called it the black B mice are reacting very mildly to Lyme disease. Are those genetic expressions? What, what does that mean, C3H mice versus black bee mice? And what is the role that genetics play in having these hosts, you know, the mice in your research, respond differently to Lyme disease? So, um, so as you mentioned, some people have very mild symptoms and others very, very severe symptoms. And a great example of that are, uh, is forestry workers. There are, there's a lot of incidents, uh, uh, several publications showing old and even more recent that certain forestry workers may have evidence, serological evidence, antibodies in their blood indicating they've been infected with Borrelia burgdorferi, but no um, evidence, no remembrance of any kind of disease. So that's an example of somebody um, 
uh, who was infected, but the infection was so mild that it was not, uh, it was not followed up or they wasn't recognized. Whereas other individuals get severely ill, acutely and then chronically ill. So the identification of mild strains which, that have that display a sort of a spectrum of disease severity was critical for saying that perhaps this could be a model for these uh, different responses that are dependent upon the host, in, the inherent genetic composition of the host and why they, and so we, it provided an opportunity to say, maybe we could compare the C3H and it's actually black six, I'm sorry, the B6 or black six mouse at, with the C3H mouse in order to say, to try to identify what are differences in the genomic um, inherent genes, uh, different type, uh, different versions of these genes that are passed down and inherited by these two strains of mice. And, and I also really wanna acknowledge that we know that there are also different um, isolates of Borrelia burgdorferi. A lot of great studies have been done to say some of the Borrelia burgdorferi only give a skin lesion when, they're, when they infect humans. Others give this disseminated disease and can cross the blood-brain barrier and cause arthritis and carditis. And so we know that there's the contrary, clearly the bacteria themselves have genetic differences that contribute to disease severity. So the, but the nice thing with, uh, with a laboratory model is that you can use a single isolate of Borrelia burgdorferi and uh, you know that all of your mice receive the same number of bacteria have the same ISO, the same clone of Borrelia, and yet they have different responses, different severity of disease when they're infected with that. Okay, so just to recap that, so we know that Lyme is very complex. We know that there are various species of the Lyme bacteria that impact the host, meaning humans or mice differently. Some can cause just arthritis, some can be disseminated, cause you know heart issues, brain issues, neurological issues, et cetera. But what's so I think beneficial about your research is you are isolating a specific strain of Lyme disease to test on all of your mice and you're getting different responses based on the genetic sequence of these mice, which are the black six, the C3H, et cetera. And depending on what their genetic expressions are, they are responding differently to the same strain of the bacteria. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Okay. So now we know that's just something we're born with. Our, gene our, our genetic sequence, our genes are what we're born with, but we also know you study epigenetics as well. So we have the genetic, just sort of you're born with what you're born with kind of component, but then epigenetics are how your genetics are sort of turned on and off or affected by external environmental factors. So what have you learned, Dr. Weiss, about epigenetics when it comes to Lyme disease studying the mouse model? Um... I guess we haven't done um, a lot. We have looked at microRNAs, um, but they are also genetically inherited. So, but their expression is regulated um, in response to inflammatory stimulus. I would say that my lab has really not, we've done some epigenetic studies, but we really have not published um, and brought to completion any study on epigenetics. So I think that's not the contribution that my lab has made. We've really uh, focused on the, the genetic. And some of these genetic differences may be mediated through epigenetic um, alterations, certainly. And uh, 
through differences in the ability and the magnitude of response. But our focus has been, and what so far has been on actually gene sequences that are distinct between the C3H and black six mice. I'm sure epigenetics, I mean, in fact, I know epigenetics are important because we've seen some similarities reported in patients for some of the same genes, but we haven't gone there. All right, so yeah. let's let's talk about genetics versus epigenetics because I'm fascinated by this topic. Right? I mean, human beings um, human beings are adaptive beings, right? I mean, it's one of the reasons why we are the dominant species in, in the world because we're so adaptive, right? And when the human genome uh, pro uh, project had taken place, I remember again as old as I am, I remember when the project started. I remember all the excitement around it, and I remember we we came up with we sequenced our genes. And we and, and I remember at the time when when it was first reported, we had this sequence set of genes, and we had what I think they were calling like junk genes in the beginning, right? Where where they didn't know what it was, and then as it turns out, it, I, I think most of the researchers are now coming to the conclusion is that we certainly have encoded genes, uh, and actually we have fewer encoded genes than I think an onion does, which is interesting. Uh, and then we have these genes that are not encoded, which are the, the, the genes that allow us to become adaptive to our environment and to our world, right? So, so the epigenetics is the, that set of what used to be called junk genes or the genes that, that didn't have a purpose, which allow us to become more adaptive and allow us to have a response that, that permits us to survive in, in diverse environments. Is that accurate or would you give us another description of what, um, what uh, epigenetics is? So the epigenetics can, are changes in the way the genes are expressed and they can be regulated by biochemical changes to the DNA in a, in a person's particular cell. For example, there are modifications of DNA, which influence the magnitude at which the gene that 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 is encoded by that piece of the DNA is expressed. So we go the genetic, the gene and the DNA, and then you go to messenger RNA, and then you go to protein. And there are many things like you're talking about the, the previous junk DNA, things like microRNAs that are encoded in the genome, and then the RNA comes back and it sits down on a transcript and it influences it, it, it the, the microRNA influences the magnitude to which um, a gene can be expressed. So it's encoded someplace else and it, one microRNA can influence the expression level of dozens of different um, genes in an inflammatory process. And my lab did study a microRNA in, in that regard. Okay, so let's, let's talk about that as a practical bound, uh, professor. So, so um, epigenetics can be um, a gene being turned on or off, correct? Yes. It could be, um, it could, it, epigenetics could be a gene being enhanced, meaning the expression is greater as opposed to not as uh, aggressively expressed, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, and, and it, and it, and it could be, it could be turning on a gene that had no function at all, now having a function in, in, the, in the body of the, of, the, um, of the host. It could influence, um, it, it could, it also could cause uh, re-expression of something that's supposed to be expressed only say during embryonic development. Okay. And that would be something um, I think would be, uh, that people studying cancer are very interested in turning on of embryonic developmental genes at a later time in a, or in a pro, inappropriate tissue. So 
altering the regulation. Yeah. And then and then it then it will have an impact on the way that different genes interact with one another. It could. Okay. Yeah. So now give us some insight again from on a practical level, not not in the not in the uh, in the scientific level, but in a practical level, what impact epigenetics is playing in the way that our bodies as hosts are responding to uh, the Lyme bacteria? So, um, in the case of microRNAs, uh, there are. Uh, Let's see. So when we when we are infected with Borrelia burgdorferi and our inflammatory cells, white blood cells respond by making large amounts of particular um, molecules designed to fight the infection. Um, some these are very important and helpful. At, um, starting inflammation, which can result in clearing the bacteria, but they have to be turned down. So they have to be, they, they can be expressed very robustly, but they can't go on forever expressed robustly. They need to be um, regulated. And so simultaneously with um, turning on inflammation in a good way, there are also other uh, genes that encode the uh, molecules called microRNAs that are turned on. And the microRNAs actually go back and they kind of act like a rheostat. They, they don't shut off, but they tamper down the level. So they're, they, um, they regulate and they say, okay, we don't want to have overabundant inflammation because that can be very harmful, especially if it's localized in a particular tissue like. But we can suppress and kind of temper it down and turn it down. And so these are things that are turned on simultaneously with inflammation, but they also, they act as sort of a feedback just to, to reestat, to reduce the level of inflammation to an appropriate level that's not harmful to the host. So you want a very robust initial response, but you want to kind of control it. Okay, so let, let me let me walk back before Matt. Matt is getting really excited and he wants to jump in and geek out with you on, on some of these issues, but I want to walk it back to the to the um, probabilities, or I guess maybe permutations. So one of the things that we've seen in our community uh, is, uh, and I guess we, we could even use me and Matt as examples, is, um, is we have a great deal of diversity within the human population, just like you have the diversity within the, in the mouse population, right? And in, in the human population, we have a whole bunch of people, as you had, had pointed out with the, with the forestry studies, where they have come in contact with ticks on a regular basis, have been bitten by ticks on a regular basis, and they have no response. And I, I think I may be one of those examples. I've been, I've been bitten by ticks in my entire life. I grew up on Long Island, and 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 tick removal, and and we had a tick kit sitting on my my the shelf that we walked in the room when we walked into our house in our mudroom because we were bitten by ticks so often, our and our and our companion animals were bitten by ticks so often that we had to remove ticks all the time, right? Yet, thankfully, I'm knocking on wood. I've never been sick. Um, whereas now we have Matt, by contrast, who also grew up on Long Island, and he became chronically ill. So that could, of course, happen in one of two ways. One way it could be is, as a host, I may have a different set of genes that are allowing me to respond differently, or when I'm being bitten by a tick, the tick, the, the, um, 
strain of the bacteria or the combination of germs that are being spit into me may be different than the combination of, 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 um, of, of germs that are spit into Mac, right? So you're seeing the same thing with the mice. So one of the questions that was sort of jumping out at me is, why do you believe the mice have the different genetic uh, expressions? Is it because they're from different regions of the world or because they've come in contact with this pathogen and they have a, they, they have a built-in sort of immunological software that's allowing them to respond? I mean, what, what are your sense of why, why you're seeing the diversity in the, in the mouse population and does that apply to the human population? So I, so I think in nature, presumably, the wild mice that uh, would get very sick when infected with Borrelia burgdorferi, they would be selected against because they wouldn't. And so the mice that we see are ones that, um, that have a, a, a moderated uh, response that allows them to not become uh, disabled upon infection that they just, it, there's just the, the selection, the selective pressure would be too great. Right. In the you're laboratory seeing, mice. Right, the, in the, the laboratory mice, so you're seeing a spectrum, right? Is that, is that because they've been bred to have a spectrum or because they were from a diverse population of mice that were captured in the wild and you saw these different presentations? They, most of this, the mice derived decades ago, they, they are initially, uh, were derived from um, these uh, um, these fancy mice that were kept in by royalty and um, and they were um, you know sort of amateur hobby hobbyists um, just sort of characterized oh look these are these mice are all white these mice are black these mice are this brown agouti color and they were initially bred as fancy mice but through inbreeding they were selected to have different traits that were also followed up. So there's dozen, there are dozens and dozens of strains, but they all, they are relatively similar to each other, but they have different traits. And there are no, there's no selective pressure for laboratory mice that are um, now bred and housed under pathogen-free conditions with all the food and water and clean bedding that they need. So there's no selective pressure um, that would uh, that would cause loss of genes that were slightly defective or made them slightly less competitive, so they could be maintained. And now, you know, they've been for decades um, kept at Jackson Labs and bred at Jackson Labs in uh, Bar Harbor, Maine, and so they they've been um, they've been genetically uh, identified as genetically pure and distinct from each other by sophisticated types of techniques and they are constantly being monitored for the monitor for the appearance of mutations that would alter them. But the selective pressure is off because they live in a controlled environment where they wouldn't be selected against. So that's why we're, and then, and so they were initially derived by, um, for traits that were unrelated to bacterial infections, but they coincidentally, along with the, the traits that they were being selected for, we found this the other kinds of differences. So some mouse strains are, are very, very prone to cancer, as I mentioned, and other types of defects. So the C3H and the black six mice, they're pure and separate from each other and inherited, um, but, and, but the ability 
or this trait of the C3H mice to have severe disease when infected with Borrelia burgdorferi, it's not selected against, so it can be maintained. And so our hypothesis was that the, the spectrum of disease that we can see and compare, if we looked at the mo two most extreme examples that Dr. Bartho identified, the C3H and the Black 6, perhaps we could compare the response of these two mice to a single Borrelia isotype of Borrelia or isolated Borrelia and identify what are the differences um, that allow the C3, that provide allow the C3H mouse to develop severe disease and allow the black six mice to be resistant to that disease. So Dr. Rice, when you say selective pressure, does that mean that the C3H mice in the lab, it's going to survive and there's a benefit and a use, but in the wild, it would become very sick and it wouldn't reproduce and it would die off because it has such a poor response to these pathogens. Is that, is that what you mean by selective pressure? I'm just not sure what you mean by that term. Yeah, that is exactly what I mean by selective pressure, that there's nothing selecting against um, a defect, any a defective response to a particular pathogen or a skewed response or an abnormal response in the lab. And let's jump back to when you're talking with Rich about certain genetic expressions or genetic activations during the embryonic phase or, you know, when you're, when you're being developed in your mother's womb versus genetic expressions when you are, you know, an adult or, you know, a young person. So that made me think about certain genes possibly related to stem cells and things like that. So what, can you expand upon the role of genes during the embryonic phase and, and the work being done now, the research being done now to see how we can activate those genes to further enhance, you know, adults, as you were saying, because it sounds very interesting in using that technique or model or thought process to help the health of humans today and maybe in, in, in regards to Lyme disease as well. Boy, uh, getting kind of out of my area of expertise. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. I you know I uh, I I you know I'm not a stem cell biologist at all. And there are people who you know we have a stem cell core at the University of Utah. People who really think about these things and how to use stem cells to correct you know defect defects, autoimmune defects, for example, and things. But I, it's really. Out of, out of my expertise. I mean, this, and so I'm sorry, I just don't want to give wrong information. No, no, I, I certainly appreciate that. I mean, that you gave us more than enough already in that regard. So, I, you know, again, following back with something you talked about with Rich, you, you kept talking about the microRNA and you said, when somebody has an inflammatory response, that's a good thing because, you know, you, you, you banged your, your elbow, right? And you're having an inflammatory response, but you need something to sort of downregulate or calm down that infl inflammatory response right. as time goes on. And I believe you said that was the microRNA that assists in that process. But I know a lot of our listeners are going to be thinking, you know, first of all, what's RNA and how is it related to DNA is the first question I have. So um, our genes are encoded in our DNA and the DNA is a copy of uh, uh, it's the genetic blueprint to make all the protein, to make the proteins. But in between the DNA sequence in the genome, we there's a molecule called RNA, and RNA is uh, transcribed for all of these genes, and uh, and the RNA then goes to the ribosome, and the ribosome is translates the RNA into protein. So DNA to RNA to protein is the way, is the um, fundamental process by which we make proteins um, in, in, which in our, in our cells. Um, 
microRNAs are other or kinds of RNAs made that don't encode proteins, but they do encode these uh, regulatory sequences that regulate the expression of um, proteins through causing degradation of the RNA. So you go DNA, RNA, protein, the microRNAs come back and bind and find particular RNA and reduce the expression, the translation of the RNA into protein at the, the ribosome. So again, they, they're specific, they don't for, for particular RNAs. And the ones we've studied in my lab, um, Rob Lockhead was a graduate student who took a lot of initiative and, and collaborated with Ryan O'Connell who had recently joined our department. And he studied uh, an RNA called microRNA 146A. And what microRNA 146A is an anti-inflammatory microRNA. So during an inflammatory response, you get a lot of inflammatory um, genes activated that go DNA, the gene becomes activated, you get transcription of the RNA that goes to and makes the, is translated into protein. The microRNA that's also um, produced at the same time as the inflammatory, as the RNA for the inflammatory genes comes back, the microRNA finds and identifies the transcripts and in that actually specifically binds to the messenger RNA, that messenger RNA and causes it to be degraded, thereby tamping down. So the microRNAs are, are, are stimulated, synthesized, and they, at the same time as the RNA for inflammatory molecules, but they turn it down. They, they dampen the response. So they're complementary processes. So it sounds like the first, I, I bang my elbow and I have an inflammatory response. The DNA tells the RNA to create a protein that goes and creates the inflammation. And I'm, I'm oversimplifying this just so I can understand it, right? But in parallel, a complementary process is the DNA then turns on this microRNA, which says, hey, we need to go down, regulate this protein to decrease the inflammation so it doesn't become a problem. And we only get the beneficial side of the inflammation because of the elbow bang. Is that at a high level what you're saying? Or yeah, I... I think so. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, you also talked about earlier the autoimmune component. You mentioned that a couple of times. And I know from doing some, some research and, and studying about the work that you've done, you are doing research to look at chronic conditions that are potentially involving autoimmune pathways with studying genes, right? So can you just give us more information about the work you're doing and how it pertains to studying autoimmune complexes? Because so many people listening to this podcast are dealing with autoimmune diseases or autoimmune symptoms because of uh, being diagnosed with late stage Lyme disease or another tick-borne illness. So, um... We, uh, so one of the things that we identified in the mouse model, in the C3H mouse, was um, the uh, overproduction of type 1 interferon. And we have shown um, that in C3H mice, that if we, uh, that at one week of infection with Borrelia burgdorferi, in the ankle joints, there's a huge upregulation of type 1 interferon and the genes that it regulates. And then that goes, and that, and we, if we actually treat a mouse um, with an antibody that blocks type one interferon, we can reduce the severity of the arthritis. Type one interferon is really interesting because it is intimately connected with um, lupus, systemic lupus erythematosus in patients. 
and in, in animal models. And so it, and in lupus, we have a lot of autoantibodies that drive um, the development of disease. Now, I should say in the C3H mice, we think that the type one interferon is driving inflammation, but you don't have to have any autoimmune, any um, T cells or B cells in a C3H mouse to, in order to get severe Lyme arthritis. Um, that's an experiment that has been done by several individuals, including um, ourselves, and we've shown that um, the arthritis you see in C3H mouse mice is not an autoimmune driven. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't autoimmune driven arthritis uh, and that there's not involvement of B cells and T cells in other types of models and in patients, but you, we can just separate the impact of the type one interferon in C3H mice and show that it is driving an inflammatory response that's not an autoimmune response. So just to clarify, B cells and T cells are immune cells. So when you're saying that in the C3H mice, which are the mice that have a severe reaction to Lyme disease in the lab model, they do have arthritis, severe arthritis, but there are no activation of immune cells like B cells or T cells, which means there's no autoimmune portion to the inflammation. They're just getting inflammation from another way, I think is what you're saying. Is that correct? I want to clarify that. Okay. Um, Certainly there's activation of B cells and T cells, especially B cells in a C3H mouse, but we can have a special breed of a C3H mouse that lacks all T cells and B cells and they still get arthritis. Oh, so, so you're able to, you're able to isolate the fact that it is not an autoimmune response by, by really specializing and refining your sample study of the mouse. That's absolutely, that's correct. So so definitely you get a huge in a in a C3H mouse that's um, that's not that's not been modified that does have an active B cell and T cell component. You get a lot of, of antibodies made, but the antibodies themselves are not driving the disease. So that's a very confusing. So just because you have this this heightened production of antibody doesn't mean that's responsible. You have to separate is that causing it or is that a consequence of the bacteria and its potent ability to stimulate inflammation and stimulate um, B cell activation. So that, yes, that's, that's, so that's the clarification. It's tricky to think about it. Well, that's the really cool part about your research though, right? Is that you're able to, to do this modification to see really what's causing what, because you would think, well, there's a ton of immune response. So maybe it's, it's, it's autoimmune. Well, it's really not because you were able to modify it. How are you modifying the C3H mice? Are you suppressing the immune system through some sort of drug and then proving that the arthritis is still present? Like what's the process to, to do that study? Okay, so this is something that, you know, hundreds of researchers have worked on and there are C3H mice that have been developed that have a mutation that prevents the development of B cells and T cells. So, and there's a, a, genetic, a genetic mutation, a genetic mutation in a mutation in the genome. Um, you may have heard of them called skid severe combined immunodeficiency. My, they're mice with a severe combined immunodeficiency, just like, you know, you've heard in ages, the boy in the bubble that has a severe yes. combined immunodeficiency. And nowadays, children born with that would get a bone marrow transplant and hopefully do very well. But those, those, genes were studied 
that were identified first in patients, but in mice by, and there's a, several different um, gene mutations that can cause a mouse to be have a severe combined immunodeficiency. So it's combined because they lack both the B cell response that makes antibodies and the T cell response that helps antibody production and is, anti, and is important for antiviral responses. So we could do infections in, a, in the laboratory mouse where the mice can be kept healthy because they're lived, they live in a pathogen-free environment. You can do experiments in a severe combined immunodeficiency mouse, different flavors, infect with Borrelia burgdorferi, and you can see, well, those mice have, uh, they still can develop arthritis. So the arthritis does not require an autoimmune response between the host recognizing uh, host B cells causing antibodies or T cells that recognize itself. It's actually driven by the bacteria getting invading the joint tissue and causing the arthritis locally in the tissue. So that's what I was gonna ask. So the, it's not the inflammation causing the arthritis, it's the actual Lyme bacteria, the spirochetes that are infecting the joints and causing inflammation and causing the arthritis, is what you're saying. That's right. That So we know it's the inflammation that the bacteria cause in the joints. Um, and this is the beauty though, of being able to compare a C3H mouse with a black six mouse. So the C3H mice and the black six mice, both with the same type of mutation, they have similar numbers of Borrelia in their joint tissue. But the C3H mice gets really severe arthritis and the black six mouse does not. So it's the genetics that's what says it's the host genetics that determines the severity, the magnitude of the inflammatory response to the bacteria that invade the joint tissue. It's not just the bacteria's ability to invade the joint tissue, it's also the, um, the regulation of that, the level of the inflammatory response. So have we, have we in your research figured out why these black six mice are not getting as sick, meaning the, the, the arthritis is not as bad, but yet it's the same concentration of bacteria. And that same bacteria is in the joints, eating away the joints, infecting the joints, but yet these C3H mice are getting horribly sick with arthritis and the black six mice are not, right? So what are the genes doing to actually help these black six mice, right? Because the inflammation is, is, still, is still really there in the C3H mice, but not so much in the black six mice, right? So um, we have studied this for 30 years. We have had a project, it's called Forward Genetics, where we made black six mice and C3H mice. And we developed, did complex crosses between these mice and their offspring to identify um, in an unbiased manner. So without preconception to say, are the genetic regions of the C3H mouse when inherited that are associated with more severe arthritis when we infect with Borrelia burgdorferi. So we, so, uh, and in doing that in collaboration with um, an immunogeneticist Corey Tuscher, several in, over, through the years, my lab has followed and identified um, several different genes that are, um, that uh, if the allele for that gene comes from C3H, the offspring develop more severe arthritis. So we are able to isolate different regions of the mouse genome that regulate arthritis severity. 
One of the most exciting and most recent discoveries, which has been worked on through the years by several different um, students and postdocs, is a gene that regulates type 1 interferon. And the type 1 interferon is, this, is an antiviral molecule that can also cause um, detrimental path pathology if it's highly expressed in a particular tissue. And in C3H mice, type 1 interferon is highly expressed when Borrelia invade the joint. And we've identified a gene that regulates type 1 interferon that had not been associated with, um, inter uh, with uh, interferon-induced uh, interferon um, diseases previously. So, that's, so we're really excited about that because it's, it offers a target for treatment um, of severe Lyme disease and, uh, and, and, and type one interferon elevation has been identified by several uh, investigators who uh, are studying um, Lyme disease in patients. Neuroborreliosis, skin, blood cells have all been identified in patients of having elevation in type one interferon. So we're so excited, very excited about that. I definitely want to ask you more about the interferon piece, but I guess where I'm where I'm a little confused is we understand that that mice that have this you know, C3H gene or I think you know this genetic component they're getting more sick. The black six mice are not. We know we know there's that correlation, but we understand exactly why the mouse is getting sicker in the C3H model versus the black six, other than saying, well, if, they, if they're black six mice, they're not gonna get a sick. If they're C3H mice, they will get a sick. Do we understand exactly what's happening that's causing that, that process of sickness to occur in the mouse? That's what we're continuing to study. So we okay. know type one interferon is really important in the C3H mice. We know if we uh, have a genetic a mutated, a mutant mouse that doesn't make type one interferon, they don't get as sick. We know if we can mm -hmm. give them an antibody, a blocking antibody, and that we can reduce the, the two type one interferon, we can reduce the severity of disease. We also know now that if we're looking, what is type one interferon doing to induce the development of arthritis? This is sort of a novel concept because we know it's not dependent upon the same things that happen in lupus where you get a, a, a number of autoantibodies. So what's type one interferon doing? We have one uh, hint because we can do genetic studies um, with uh, and looking for expression patterns of joint of, of cells actually in the joint of a C3H mouse that's developing arthritis. And we know that there's a gene called myostatin, which is a mus muscle regulatory gene that we would never have expected to be involved in Lyme arthritis. And in fact, um, a previous graduate student, Jackie Paquette, identified myostatin as being uniquely upregulated in response to Borrelia. Myostatin is, so we can, so now we, and we were able to collaborate and use an inhibitor of myostatin and cause a reduction of the um, severity of Lyme arthritis. So we are developing kind of by teasing this apart, we're going A to B to C to D. And that's what, you know, the goal is to try to find elements that we could target selectively in Lyme arthritis development, new targets that we could be used in patients that would reduce the severity of arthritis 
Um, and these are things that are not targeting the bacteria. So they're additional, they could be used in addition to antibiotics for resolution of disease, but looking at the inflammatory processes that have been um, just so robustly and possibly inappropriately activated in certain individuals to try to reduce the severity of disease. So what I like so much about this is we always talk about how Lyme, especially chronic Lyme is so bio-individual because we never know what's going on in each of our bodies. But this can be a really nice supplemental aid to any kind of treatment that a Lyme patient chooses to help reduce inflammation, to help you know, regulate these, these musculoskeletal genetic expressions to give the body a fighting chance to decrease inflammation, support your specific genetic makeup while treating, which gives you a significantly higher chance of recovery when dealing with chronic Lyme is what you're saying, I believe, right? I mean, this is really, really right. great personalized treatment to aid in the other treatments that's out there today. But just for clarification now, so the, the type 1 interferon, you said, you know, earlier you said it's an overproduction of type 1 interferon, which drives inflammation, which is different than the lupus part, because lupus is driven by immune cells, the B cells and the T cells, right. and, and the interferon really drives inflammation, but it's not really, it's not really coming from the immune system. So what is type 1 interferon? Is it a hormone? You know, what exactly is it? And how is it causing inflammation compared to the lupus side of things with Lyme disease, which is more an overreaction of immune cells causing inflammation? So type one interferon um, is, it's called a cytokine. It was, uh, and it's made, it's called interferon because it interferes with virus um, replication. Um, and it was first identified for its antiviral effects. It's a very potent antiviral molecule. Um, there and it's, um, but it's also very potent um, in promoting inflammation. So ant interferon acts antivirally by, um, it, and it is a hormone. It's it's a cytokine, but it has hormonal activities. So interferon is made in one cell very shortly after viral infection. It's secreted by that cell. And it can come feedback on itself. So that would be autocrine. It can um, go to the, an adjacent cell and through an interferon receptor and cause the antiviral state in an adjacent cell. And that's probably its most important activity it would be, that would be called, so that uh, that's a hormonal activity to cause nearby cells to turn on an antiviral state. And so the antiviral state shuts down the ability of the virus to be replicated by the adjacent cell. Because a virus comes in and takes over the cell's um, nucleic acid, DNA, RNA, primarily RNA production and protein production. So you turn on the antiviral state to shut down the production of virus. So interferons are very, very important in, in the initial control of any viral infection. But interferons at high levels, but they're also high, tightly controlled. They boost on and they come back on. If interferons are pre present at high levels, they, may they can make people really, really sick. So we know, for example, hepatitis or multiple sclerosis, people can be treated with um, interferons and it helps, uh, it helps control a viral and hepatitis infection or the immune phenomena of um, multiple sclerosis, but um, it makes people very sick. And some of the consequences include arthritis in those patients. That's why the, you know, the new Gilead treatments for hepatitis that allow act, that, that um, now no longer require the use of, um, of interferon for patients with hepatitis have been game changers. It's just <laughs> a tremendously um, 
improve the quality of life of individuals who have been treated for hepatitis because interferons can be so um, so detrimental. The, the consequences, side effects can be so detrimental. So it seems like Lyme disease in general creates so many things to be off balance in your body. You know, we've learned from other, other professionals that are studying hormones in Lyme patients that in many Lyme patients, cortisol production gets stuck on overdrive and your cortisol receptors aren't responding well and your body keeps producing more and more cortisol and it has a really negative impact on your hormones. You have adrenal fatigue, you have burnout. It has, it has a whole component there. And what we're hearing from you, Dr. Weiss, is that interferon is a necessary component of the human body as a process. And it's good when it's turned on to address some sort of, you know, as an antiviral to address a virus, but then it needs to shut off because it, and it needs to, it needs to be regulated in the quantity and the duration. But in Lyme patients, it's almost getting stuck on overdrive where it's just always on in high concentrations and that's contributing to inflammation, causing pain and discomfort in Lyme patients. Is that, is that correct? Well, in patients, we know that there's evidence that it's on long, long term or that can be identified in the mice it definitely, it goes on at a very hyperdrive level. And then it, and then it turns back, it's, it is turned back on down. It is, so it's on at one week of infection comes back down, but the arthritis doesn't develop until four weeks later. So we think it's the consequence of that really strong boost by activating things like myostatin that lead to the, the development of the arthritis. But as, once the arthritis is full blown, um, it, you know, it's hard, it takes a long time for that arthritis to resolve, even if you would, were to treat the animal, the mouse with antibiotics, that inflammation is, is very stubborn to clear. So did you say Dr. Weiss said in the human, in humans, we know that it gets stuck on, but in mice, it does not. But even in mice, that when it spikes pretty aggressively and it comes back down weeks later, it causes severe arthritis, but in humans, if it gets stuck on, it can be even worse. Is that what I heard? I just want to make sure I'm hearing you correctly with that. Well, we don't, it hasn't been studied. Type one interferon hasn't been studied. Um, it's a marker that has been identified and reported to be elevated in patients with neuroborreliosis, to be elevated in um, blood from patients with uh, early Lyme disease, for example, with skin lesions, things. So it's been reported, but its regulation has not. And so I don't want to overstate, we, we, think that it is on, we know that there are reports of type one interferon being induced in Lyme disease in inpatients, but it has, its regulation has not been studied in those patients and it needs to be studied. Meaning we know it's definitely been on and at a high level. We don't know if it's staying on or for how long it's staying on, as we're saying in the human model, right? Okay. That's right. Gotcha. But we don't even, even at a, even at a spike, when it comes back down, it still causes severe illness in the mice model with arthritis. So I guess where I, or my head is coming from with this is, in the line, we have some line patients we interview who say, I have no autoimmune issues. I've had all my blood work done, but I still have severe pain, chronic pain and arthritis. And that could be potentially related to an overproduction of type one interferon. But then the lupus piece of it, the autoimmune piece of it is separate and distinct where you're having an immune response. And then there are other patients who have chronic pain due to Lyme, which it could be coming from the autoimmune response with the T cells and the B cells. Is that what you're seeing in your research, Dr. Weiss, that there's really, there could be two different triggers for inflammation and pain with Lyme patients that I just described? Yes, but we actually, and we have a model for um, T cell involvement and, and it's a different model. It's, sorry. That's okay. It's a model on a, on the black, on, uh, the black six mouse, it's a genetic model. Um, it's called the IL-10 deficient black six mouse. And IL-10 is um, 
It's a cytokine that's an anti-inflammatory cytokine. And if you lack that cytokine, the mice get have a much higher, um, they have a high B cell response, but they have a very active T cell response that's making um, a molecule called um, interferon gamma. So it's a, it's not type one interferon. It's a different kind of interferon. And it's, it seems to be really important in the um, T cell mediated disease that's seen um, in some patients. So we know that some of the chronic Lyme patients, uh, patients with post-treatment Lyme disease, that in their joint tissue, they have high levels of interferon gamma not type one interferon, but interferon gamma and a number of other cytokines. And they have um, a lot of T cells and inflammatory infiltrate that is sustained after the treatment of with antibiotics. Um, and in our hands, we have the IL-10 deficient mouse and we have looked and we have similar sustained arthritis, hardly non-detectable Borrelia still in joints, even though these mice haven't been treated with antibiotics. The, um, in the absence of IL-10, the inflammatory response is so strong, it really suppresses, it clears the Borrelia very efficiently. Um, and they have, auto, they produce autoreactive, in humans, autoreactive T cells and antibodies. In mice, we have sustained bystander activation. All kinds of T cells are activated in the joint tissue and in the mice and in the lymph nodes to the joint tissue of the mice. And we think it's provide, promoting an environment at it, that in the right conditions, an autoreactive autoimmune event could occur. At this point, it's what we're tracing is just nonspecific activation of all T cells um, in the region. And, and that's producing cytokines of inflammatory molecules that cause recruitment of white blood cells to the joint tissue which are really um, very, that make this pro-inflammatory environment. And that, that's really um, what we're seeing is driving the chronic um, arthritis in our model of T-cell driven um, Lyme disease. So it's, we have two different models. So this is one that's definitely T-cell dependent. It causes a, an un, um, a non-classical activation of T cells. It's not antigen specific T cells, it's all the T cells that get activated. And we think um, it's a direct effect of the ability of the Borrelia burgdorferi to get into the lymph nodes, activate cells in the lymph nodes, and also the Borrelia to get into the joint and recruit T cells to the joint tissue and then cause this very active inflammatory environment in the joint. So Dr. Weiss, why is the inflammatory environment a, an environment that benefits the bacteria? Um, I'm not sure if it's an environment that benefits the bacteria. The bacteria are present at very, very low numbers to non-detectable in the joint. Um, it's, it's just a lack of control, a dysregulation. And and so I, I can't, I don't know that it, 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 there's an advantage to the bacteria. It's just, it's, we're using the IL-10 knockout mouse as an, as an example of an environment that's um, lost regulation. And we don't think that patients lack, totally lack IL-10, but they have a dysregulation. The patients who after treatment have sustained symptoms, something is, is out of regulation. And we'd like to figure out ways to reset the inflammatory response um, in, in the patient. So why does the inflammatory response 
have an impact on our ability to clear the germs? And if, if it does, then doesn't that benefit the, the germ? So in this case, in the patients, they've been treated with antibiotics. So the bacteria should have been removed. So there's something preventing the, um, the inflammatory response from returning to baseline, returning to normal. So is it due to the persistence of fragments of the bacteria, components that can't, that are not, that are not being appropriately cleared by the host's defense? That so are, are you arguing that the bacteria has been cleared because of the use of the, um, of the antibiotics? Or are you arguing that the bacteria has been cleared because you're able to see that in, in what you're able to examine in the laboratory? So in the laboratory, we can, we can treat with the antibiotics. And when we treat with antibiotics, the arthritis resolves. So we, this is not, um, uh, so this is not an exact replica of what is seen in patients because we can treat and follow in the, but in the mice that we don't treat, the level of Borrelia are so low that um, uh, they're no longer detectable in the joint tissue, but the arthritis is sustained at a high level. So we think that there's something that the, um, that it's sustaining this arthritis and it's, and it may be what's in patients that allows for a condition where an autoimmune response can, um, can develop in the patient joint tissue. Separately. So, but I, I'm just, so I, what I'm not clear about is, so you, you, you're, you, treat the, you treat the mouse with antibiotics, you're able to resolve the bacteria, at least you're not able to, you're not able to locate any bacteria in the mouse, yet the arthritic response is still present. That's right. That's in the mice that we don't treat with antibiotics. So, um, and we, so in the mice that when we don't treat with antibiotics, these mice will sustain severe arthritis for 14 weeks, 30 weeks without any evidence of Borrelia in the joint tissue. And so, and so we know that there's a tiny bit of Borrelia someplace, but it's not in the joint tissue, yet the arthritis is sustained and the T cell remain activated. So there's something, uh, so there's just enough of an inflammatory trigger that lead to this really robust T cell activation that is sustained for weeks and months in the mice in the absence of the anti-inflammatory. So, so uh, one of the thoughts that I had when you and Matt were talking about the interferon and, and type one is of course, one of the, one of the upsides to isolating you know, a mouse with a particular set of genetics and a strain of uh, Borrelia that is, it, that is unique and then combining them is that of course you're able to identify what the response is. And I know you, you're, you're doing more work on that, but of course in the wild, what's happening is a tick is a tick has a number of different pathogens in and the tick is spitting a number of different pathogens in including viruses, right? So right. your, your immune response um, or, or actually your, your, your hormonal response to the, to the viruses that are being spit into you will be, of course, to uh, respond with the type 1 interferon, right? Which is going to cause inflammation, which then, of course, is going to have the inflammatory response that uh, you've identified 
when the when the Borrelia are uh, causing the um, inflammatory response, which is not an immune response, right? So we have a number of different things happening here when we start to bring the permutations back in is we have, we have diversity in the host, um, the genetics of the host, we have diversity within the strains of the particular germs, and then we have a different combination of germs that are being spit into the, um, you know, into the host. And it's really difficult to even isolate one genetic host with one, um, one strain, when in fact in the wild, we have a much greater set of permutations, which may be, you know, maybe beyond calculation. Uh, I mean, I think that clearly what we do in the lab is reductionist. You pit it. And the advantage is we can, we can make some conclusions and we can isolate a single gene or a single protein and look downstream and look at its interactions. But it is a reduction, certainly, of what's going on in nature and what's going on in people, too. So absolutely, there's, you know, we, we can, uh, the, the complexity is much, much greater in each of the individual human hosts for Borrelia and, um, and it just as you, as you um, outlined for the wild type, with the wild mouse. So well. we're seeing, we're seeing patterns develop in the Lyme community that, um, that again, uh, we, we've often identified. So for example, the, um, it, it appears uh, based on at least our podcast and our social media and the interaction that we're having that uh, there's diversity not um, not only based on like this there may there may be diversity based on gender for example right so we we saw we saw with COVID that um, that the female immune system appears to have managed COVID better than the male immune system and again I know the the, the data is is still being processed um, and it appears that perhaps the female immune system may have a different response or capacity to manage Lyme. Are you are you seeing any any diversity um, in um, in the mouse models with gender? And we do not. Um, we we see that both males and females of C3H and Black Six strains um, respond about the same to Borrelia. We see the. Um, Male mice have maybe a little broader spectrum of arthritis severity, but on average, it's very similar response to the females. And in the mice that we have generated in order to isolate these individual genes on a particular background that we generated in the lab, we're not seeing a difference between males and females. So in our hands, we're not seeing. Now, why do you think uh, antibiotics don't eradicate and remove symptoms from Lyme in humans, but appear to do so in the mouse models? Um, I think, uh, I, you know, that's really hard for me uh, to, to say. You know, we haven't done, I mean, we've done some an, uh, antibiotic uh, experiments and there's, and occasionally there'll be a mouse that will not uh, not have complete resolution, but generally we find pretty good resolution in us. So I think it's just that maybe the uh, the control we can add a high give a higher amount. I, I really I just can't I can't say. Dr. Rice, I'm curious about in you know in reading up about all the work that you do, you use you describe using this Murin model of Lyme disease to assess the development of arthritis you know, following the infection of the spirochete Borrelia burgdorferi. So what is this Murin model? Is this something you developed? Can you talk to us more about that model and how you use it in your research? 
So by mirroring, I mean the mouse model of Lyme disease, and it was developed by uh, Steve Barthold. So he, Steve Barthold's initial observations of C3H mouse developing severe disease, that was the first mirroring model developed. Um, and, uh, uh, and so we have based our work on Steve Barthold's initial work, but then we have uh, the IL-10 knockout mouse is, a, uh, is one example of a mirroring model where we get uh, bystander, this uh, overabundant T cell response, bystander T cell activation. The other uh, use of the mirroring model is the comparison between black six and C3H mice. So it really, it, it's just a term, another term for a mouse model. Gotcha. So using the mouse model, the two, the two approaches are those that we discussed. One of them being there's that autoimmune complication with T cells and B cells. One of them being there's not, and it's the interferon creating the inflammation and the symptomology, right? Yes. Okay. So, you know, give us some hope here, right? Because most of the listeners on our podcast no. are suffering from chronic Lyme disease, have tried antibiotics long-term, a wide variety of antibiotics, combination antibiotics. They've tried all kinds of natural herbal therapy. They've tried all kinds of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. They've tried, you know, you name it, anything under the sun to feel better. And they're not, you know, they're, they're still working towards getting themselves into a, into a symptom-free state. And most of the people we interview were living healthy lives until they got diagnosed with Lyme disease and weren't able to recover. So there's de definitely a correlation there. So, you know, what, what word of advice could you give to our listeners or hope to our listeners that there are people, really smart people like you, Dr. Weiss, that are going to be able to help us understand more detailed, specific things about Lyme to help us get symptom relief and get our quality of life back, you know, in the, in the near future here? Well, the thing that I would like to do in the last few years of my um, career is to translate this work to patient populations. And I think, you know, I've uh, have, uh, had discussions and some pilot studies with samples from people like um, John Ocott at uh, Johns Hopkins, who has this amazing uh, perspective study where, you know, he's followed patients as at first diagnosis, treated and non-treated, and then can say, oh, look, some patients respond to treatment, some don't. So there, we now have a way to compare and actually look in a very controlled environment uh, of controlled clinical care and have samples from patients at the very earliest diagnosis before treatment to see, are there inherent differences? So these are the kind of things I would like to work with these fabulous clinical studies to try to say, can we see if some of the genes that we're identifying, some of the responses that we're identifying in mice, do the, are these also seen in patients if we have these particular things to look at in a very, you know, in a very fine-tuned mechanism? Can we identify um, similarities in the patterns of individuals who respond well and those who do not, don't, people who have severe disease and have mild disease? And then these would be novel ways to target and treat. Um, and so we're looking for, we're trying to identify novel targets that we can assess in our animal model easily, and then go to clinical samples, um, to clinical investigations. Alan Steers, another clinician who I've talked with also to try to say, do we find any similarities? Can we, is there hope that some of these things we're identifying in the mice and we can try in the mice could also have um, help for the patients in these uh, well-defined well, well -defined, uh, patient samples. 
Dr. Rice, we, we really love the way you're using the murine model and, and the way that you're trying to translate that to uh, the human population. It's just brilliant and it's really, really exciting. Um, I, I actually want to ask for your reaction on a different issue, which is um, in some cases, what we're seeing is that there is, um, I guess, a suggestion that what we should be doing is trying to alter the genetics of mice in the wild, that essentially we should be finding ways of, 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 of altering the genetic composition of mice. Um, and, and I have to tell you, again, I'm gonna give you this, my reaction even before I ask for yours is that, that really makes me uncomfortable. I, I, I'm really concerned about the, you know, the, the, the um, you know, anytime we as a human population make changes to the genetic composition of any uh, animal in the wild. What is your, what are, are you familiar with any of the, those recommendations and the studies that are being done? And what is your reaction to um, the belief that perhaps uh, the way to stop Lyme disease from coming to the human population is by altering the genetic composition of mice in the wild? So I probably not, I'm not as well versed on those studies um, as I think you, you probably are. I think these are are they being done on Martha's Vineyard or Nantucket yes. and yes. their mice expressing an antibody against Borrelia ospei? Yes. Right. So I don't, um, I mean, I think that it's a situation of, in theory, the idea is that you would spread through the entire mouse population, mice that would be resistant to Borrelia. And of course, the caveats are that we know there's so many different, that there's ability to select for Borrelia expressing different outer surface antigens that might bypass um, by, that might by, bypass the particular antibody being expressed by that mouse and also that other small animals can serve as uh, reservoirs for Borrelia burgdorferi. So I, I you know, I, I think I share your concern. I, I guess my concerns are what would, will this be um, effective in the long term or will you where you end up with with um, different Borrelia or other uh, animal reservoirs that are that um, become uh, more important than the mouse. But I think that you know, the, in theory, the idea of trying to um, to control the mouse population and control the reservoir host for Borrelia burgdorferi makes a lot of sense in these confined refined communities. I don't know that there's a lot of, um, I, I don't have a lot of fear that the mice are going to um, somehow um, alter or make a super mouse that's, um, that's going to take over the population. I, I guess my concern is what, you know, what is the long-term effectiveness of making a mouse resistant to a particular isolate or few isolates of Borrelia burgdorferi when there are so many other isolate, uh, potential isolates that could then rebound. But it really is a slippery slope. You know, for example, you're, you're, you're genetically altering mice in your lab for the purposes of isolating a particular response, but you're not releasing that population of mice that are being genetically altered into the wild to alter the, you know, the, 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 the mouse right. population. And, and I think it is a slippery slope. I think once we start to alter uh, genetic code and once we start to release that into the wild, we don't know what the impact is going to be. And I think once we go down the slippery slope, we may be creating Franken mouse. And I, I know you, you seem to be less concerned about that than I am, but I, I am, I, I think it is a slippery slope. And I think it's, 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 you know, in a carefully controlled environment like yours, 
it makes sense and, it, and it's beneficial, I think, when we're when we're trying to begin to genetically alter, um, you know, animals in the in the wild, I think it's a slippery slope that may send us in a place where uh, we may be getting outcomes that uh, are much worse than those that we're trying to protect against. Yeah, I, you know, I think that these are, I think these are there are a lot of very strong feelings about this. As I say, I'm really not um, an expert on, on. I know there have been many. I think that there have been town halls and things to discuss yeah. this. Yeah, no, and, and I think it's more of an ethical question than anything else. But I just, because we were having the conversation about urine model and because it's such a large part of your work, I was just wondering what your reaction would be. Uh, but I, I understand it's off topic. So why don't you, uh, you know, as, as sort of a, as sort of a um, way of winding down this podcast, um, answer the question that we ask everyone on our podcast, which is, if God forbid one of your daughters came into your room right after this podcast, and they were, and they found a tick biting them. What would you recommend they do so that they wouldn't go on a chronic Lyme disease journey? Well, since one of them's an MD and one's <laughs> and their sister's a PhD, depends on what, one of them would be telling me exactly what to do, and the other one would be calling her sister. So, <laughs> but at, at the University of Utah, I mean, I do get phone calls a lot, emails and phone calls with people who are very concerned about uh, relatives that are coming to visit or they've caught, they've been um, in an endemic area or they have, and, or, or they've been told they have Lyme disease. And we have a wonderful infectious disease department at the University of Utah, a big global medicine group. So even though we don't have um, very many cases of Lyme disease in Utah, we do have people who, um, who vacation elsewhere, who, who come here or who, and, um, and so I just, I have, I, there are several physicians um, in the infectious disease division who I know are experts and very knowledgeable. And I always direct patients to see those physicians um, at the University of Utah. And I say, you can use my name, you can email this person and they will definitely um, try to get them, them in there. They're very um, experienced. We have great rheumatologists, rheumatology community too. And, you know, and so, and then we, um, and so, and that's what I do at the um, living in Salt Lake City is I try to connect people with really knowledgeable physicians at, at the University of Utah or other, other local hospitals. Professor Rice, we can't thank you enough for taking time out of your really busy schedule, not only getting up really early, but taking time out of your busy schedule to do, to do this podcast. And we thank you for all of the great work that you're doing. And we really can't wait to see um, as your career progresses, uh, that um, we, we can't wait to see how you you bring your work into the clinical setting and hopefully help us resolve uh, more and more of the suffering that's being caused by Lyme disease. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's really a, it's a pleasure, and I uh, I wish everyone the best. I hope that you you both do well, and I hope all of um, the patients that are listening. I'm I'm very hopeful for all of you. So thank it's you. A privilege to get to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to our Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Dr. Janice Weiss. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Dr. Weiss, please check out the University of Utah's faculty webpage at medicine.utah.edu forward slash faculty. Second, if you've enjoyed this episode of our Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends on social media. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a Tick by Blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been shared with us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at tickbootcamp.com slash bite to view our blueprint. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. 
to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on your podcast platform of choice. And finally, if you'd like to search our podcast library of almost 300 episodes, subscribe to our email list, or share feedback with us, please visit our website at tickbootcamp.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.